Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is Good Humans Podcast with me, Cooper Chapman chatting to the world's best about the inspiring stories that got them to where they are today. What's going on, you good humans? Welcome to a very, very special bonus episode of Good Humans Podcast with a guest by the name of George Carmichael. This is going to be guest 117 and far out. This is a story that... Oh, he's a hard one to share, but Far Out is going to inspire the hell out of you to really go after life and to, yeah, count your blessings and have a grateful mindset for the life that you get to live because, yeah, George's story is unlike any I've ever heard and I'm so grateful that I got to have it. A big thank you, as always, to our sponsors, Drinker Rapper. These guys have been supporting my brain and so many of your brains. So many of you have been messaging me recently, letting me know that you've been enjoying it, tagging me in your stories, which has just been amazing. So for anyone who's new here, Drink a Rapper is a brain performance drink from over in New Zealand. They have backed everything by neuroscience. They've been working with some of the world-leading neuroscientists to create a product that is scientifically proven to short-term improve your brain performance, but also long-term help with your brain health. So if you go over to their website, drinkarepper.com, use the code GOODHUMAN, you get a huge 25% off all of their products. You can also check out all of the science that they've put into their products over on the website. So go check it out. Also, if you enjoyed today's episode, can you do me a huge favor? Go and hit like or subscribe. Give us five stars. Leave us a little review because, yeah, these stories are just so impactful on me and so many of you as well. So the best thing you can do, share it around, subscribe, do all that good stuff. You know what it is. And, yeah, it really helps us get this podcast out to more people. And today's episode is even more special. If you enjoy it, share it with a friend. Put it on your Instagram story. This is one that I truly believe that needs to go viral. Georgia has a terminal illness. She doesn't know how much longer she's got to live. I mean, none of us do, but yeah, she's been told by doctors now that she's on care and comfort rather than any treatment, which yeah, is just crazy to think of 21 year old girl from over in the UK. So Georgia reached out to me on social media. She's been part of the 1% good club gratitude groups for the last uh, year or so. And I had no idea about her condition or about her story, but she reached out to me recently and said, I'd love to come on the podcast, share my story, and yeah, maybe it can help some people along their journey. So we set up a time, jumped on a Zoom call, and I didn't even know this, but she answered the Zoom. She's sitting in a hospital bed over in the UK right now. I was at home here in Australia, and yeah, we just had the most beautiful conversation. She told me all about her journey from being... Um, UK champion of uh, kayaking. She had death. Well, she's dreamed to go to the Olympics. That was her goal after really, yeah, falling in love with rowing. When she was a young girl, around 10 years old, she was like, yep, this is for me. She was destined to go to the Olympics. And then basically a series of unfortunate events have happened to Georgia throughout her life. She had a brain injury right after she won her first national title. She then recovered from that and then had another brain injury, which is just so, so sad, the second one, how long it took her to recover and what that recovery process looked like. 
But once again, she healed. She was back on the mend. And then, yeah, she had another accident where she had a whitewater rafting crash. She ended up, yeah, doing spinal damage. Also, yeah, another head injury, which then led the doctors to, after many, many tests and not knowing what was wrong with her for so long as her condition wasn't improving, they diagnosed her with a rare, very rare um, terminal illness, basically, called... I think it's called, I'm going to butcher whatever the name is. But anyway, it has something to do with the mitochondria cells. So she just has a whole bunch of health issues, which she's trying her absolute best to overcome. She has so much hope. And yeah, I'm just so in support of her journey. Anything I can do, anything this audience can do to help her, I would really, really appreciate. So let's jump into the chat. This is a beautiful one. Make sure you share it if you enjoy it. Um, And yeah, make sure you send Georgia a message if you enjoy it too and send her some words of support. So let's jump into it. Welcome to Good Humans Podcast, Georgia Carmichael. How are you going? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this. Um, I'm going to set the scene for everyone else listening right now that isn't watching. You're sitting in a hospital bed, you're over in the UK, and you have a story that is extraordinary um going to be sad at times going to be yeah interesting at times but i think the main thing is it's going to be super inspiring to hear your story and what you've dealt with so maybe just really quickly so people get a snapshot of what they're about to hear about uh let the listeners know who you are what you do and just real quickly um why you're sitting in a hospital bed right now um george carmichael i'm 21 and I'm currently sitting in a hospital bed because I'm fighting a very rare illness that took six years to diagnose. And within that time, I went through many ups and downs of injuries and accidents. Uh, but we finally had the diagnosis. Well, yeah, it's um something that you don't wish on your worst enemy. 21 years old, having to deal with a rare illness that, yeah, has been obviously so long to diagnose and sent probably you and your family through six years of hell, but you're still smiling, you're still positive and you've um, still got some big goals and dreams ahead of you. So I'm really excited to get to know the story. So I guess firstly, the first question I do ask everyone and it's going to be not a hard one to ask you, but for someone sitting in a hospital bed, it can probably be pretty hard to find this sometimes, but I know you are part of the 1% club, so you do practice gratitude. So tell me what's one thing that you're grateful for in life right now? I think for me at the moment, it's my support crew, like around me, my friends and family who turn up every day to come see me, bring me food, lighten my day when they don't have to, but they're always there um, on the bad days and the good days, which I'm forever grateful for. Mm, So important. It's, um, yeah, so nice to know that you do have some people around you that are really supporting you on this uh, journey that you're on right now. So the other question I like to open with for everyone is normally in a repetition, but you're on the other side of the world. So we're going to try and get some a refer all the way over to you because I'm sure it'll be good for your brain. I'm sure you heard me talk about it all the time, but I'm about to drink in a refer because it is very early in the morning for me and it's quite late at night for you. So we're, um, yeah, yeah we're gonna, bit... it's a bit of a contrast, but we're going to work our way through this chat. So to kick it off, let's um, rewind back to the beginning. Where in Great Britain were you born? What was life like as a kid? What was family life like? What do I need to know about your upbringing that'll make me understand the girl you are today? So I'm from England, Buckinghamshire, um, and I've grown up kind of a very outdoorsy life, always on sport. I was had ADHD as a young kid, so for me, sport was kind of a great outlet to get my energy and 
from a young age I realized that I was good at some things especially water sport and was always just drawn to the water um, it's kind of where I felt, felt home and I grew up with my mum and my dad and my older brother but my parents did split when I was about nine ten uh, and then the ADHD became a lot worse so I got into sport and that for me is where it became competitive for me as it was just something to focus on and I loved it. What was it like when you're as a nine ten year old your parents splitting up was that something pretty hard for you to deal with I feel like you kind of get a bit of a contrast some kids find it really difficult some kids find it really tough and tens right around that age that you are starting to become a young woman you're starting to progress probably from primary to high school what um yeah what was that like for you having to watch your parents split but also start living what some I guess describe as almost like a double life having stay at one the parents stay at the others what was that what was it like for you I remember when I first kind of found out the first thing I thought was oh great I get two Christmases I mean that's all I thought at first but then as time went on it was quite hard like I wouldn't see my mum that much I wouldn't see my dad that much and I know it put a lot of stress on my mum and my brother being older he realized a lot more and wanted to protect me but I think it was tough, especially when I go around to my friends' houses and their parents would be together and I'd feel quite jealous. And when I'd be upset about it, that kind of age, they don't really understand. Um, but definitely as I got older, I started to be like, I'm different and I don't have this family that I've always wanted, you know. Um, but then I learned to appreciate it and appreciate that they're both still there for me, just in a slightly different way. Mm. No, I love that. It's a good mindset to adopt. And great one to be able to adopt when you're that young so you mentioned sport was a big way for you to manage your ADHD were you medicated from a young age so no so my parents always kind of didn't want to go down that route and try everything else first and the first thing we actually did try was sport because sporty background and for me it worked enough and it kind of kept me you know I'd behave enough in school as long as I was doing the sport I could do then I was okay. Yeah. What With sport, what was the first one that really drew your attention? Because you said from a young age, 10 years old, you started understanding competitive sport, getting a bit more into it. What was what was some of the sports that you, I guess, tried as a kid? And then how did you end up in rowing and kayaking? It's sort of so cold over in the UK. I wouldn't want to be anywhere near water. <laughs> yes, I don't really. Um, so I used to, you know, play hockey, um, lacrosse at our school all sorts of you know the classic netball at our school and then when I moved with my mum to where I live now there was an open day at a local sports club and I lived by the river and they had kayaking and rowing and I tried them and I just instantly was like this is really cool how old were you and in ten, I was a 10 10 yeah so I was just over 10 when I started kayaking and at my school I joined we had a rowing club so I joined that and for me, it was just the feeling of water, being on the water. It was just so relaxing and it just helped me. And not like if school was hard, I knew I had rowing at the end of the day and that would keep me a lot calmer. And then kind of it started progressing and I was getting better and better. And I remember when I was probably about 11, I was in a kayak and my brother came to try it as well. And we did a little race, like a friendly race, and I beat him. And he's five years older than me. So for me, this was a very big moment because we're both very competitive. And I remember getting off the water and just going to my mum, I'm going to the Olympics. Like there was no doubt about it. I was certain. And from then that was kind of my dream and my goal and training stepped up and up and I was working towards that goal. Wow. So 10 years old, fall in love with kayaking, 
under, see the vision, see that it's in the Olympics. All right, this is my future. What were those first yeah. few, few, few years like for you, learning the sport, getting better at it, having coaches? Talk me through the feelings that it brought you getting to, yeah, start to chase that dream and that progression up until 15 when you have your, 15, you have your traumatic brain injury? Yeah, the first one. So in the few years leading up to that, it was obviously I just was kind of getting better and better and moving up the groups. And then I moved to a bigger club and was getting scouted. And at 13, I actually got onto the GB team and I was the youngest to get onto it. And for me, that was like a wow, like I'm really doing this moment. And we were training kind of hours a day. It was it was a lot. And managing the school alongside, you know, I was spending all my weekends up about four hours away from home and training. And But it was my life. And yes, I miss out on maybe some things the kids were doing. But for me, it was something cool and different. And I honestly was just in love with the sport and everything around it. I liked the routine and the discipline that we had to have. And just it was making me grow up a lot quicker. Mm. and I really like enjoyed that part of it and being with a lot of the older kids who were training and then getting better and beating them I was like cool this is pretty cool like I think I can do this well that's so cool at 13 getting scouted for the Great Britain team and really having that path set and having that kind of goal and vision from a young age and yeah like you kind of said snapped into a bit of maturity based on the groups that you were getting to train with what about tell me how um how cold it is trying to get in the water and trying to how do you get wet very often with kayaking and rowing or bloody cold in the UK when it's winter yeah I mean there is a lot of sessions where you can fall in and there's things that go wrong (laughs) but I remember in winter uh sometimes I'll come off the water my hands will be like frozen to the paddle and my my hair like my ponytail would just be frozen solid um and in kayaking we do like long sessions like covering 20 kilometers in a session and coming off just freezing cold and then just wanting to get warm but you can't straight away oh. so yeah that was that was pretty painful my hands would get so sore oh I bet I bet I'm like when when I hear people doing sports that the training is like real painful I'm just like god I wish I'm so glad I was a surfer like I dropped out of um, playing rugby because I was like oh the training sucks I have to run and get tackled when I'm training as well and then the surfing was like oh this is great but then I think of like people like you in countries where it's cold and having to do sports like kayaking or people who go and do swimming training and go just swim up and down laps at like 4am. I'm just like, oh, I do not envy you guys, but I bloody respect you because it's um, a lot of work goes into being a top level athlete in any category. And when I hear sports yeah. like yours, like being a great kayaker in Great Britain, that's like at the very bottom of my list. I'm like, oh my God, it sounds too cold. But good on you it's uh it's great to see yeah. the passion and the joy that it obviously brings you let's talk sure. about this um brain injury 15 years old walk me through that day and what happened um and then yeah well so what you can remember to, yeah so leading up to it, i the week before i just returned home from the world championships wow. um and also I was 15 years old so I really yeah, yeah. To go. yeah and i was kind of the underdog at this race and no one really thought i'd do well and um I actually came away with two golds at that event in the under 18s at 15. So it was quite a big moment for me. And that was when I started getting recognized. And then unfortunately, a week later, I came home and it was just a simple accident at school. Um, I was tripped over and fell off a height and hit the back of my head. So 
and broke my shoulder as well. So I was okay at first, and then we were more worried about my shoulder because obviously as a kayaker and row, like that's a very important part of my body that I need. How did you trip over while just at school? Yes, it was like I was standing on slightly a, a higher raised part um, of this like changing room. And then I just like tripped back and lost my footing and then went into the back of the wall and like the corner went into the back of my head. Oh. Yeah, so it was quite nasty, but I was okay at the time. Um, my shoulders were strapped up and then over time I started developing more and more symptoms before I ended up in the hospital after my first seizure. And from that moment, like we knew something was quite bad. And so I was in quite a big main hospital around here and they kind of were like, we don't really know what to do. Like, we, we haven't really seen this before because I was the brain injury I had should have been evident a lot earlier than it presented like I should have been very poorly from the start so I spent some time in hospital kind of had to relearn to walk um but my focus was just get back training kind of treat rehab like training and you'll be fine and that's what I did so I got better and it took a couple of months and I had to taper back to training which was probably the hardest part because I just wanted to go like all in um 100 percent well some of the symptoms were getting like was it like concussion symptoms? Because I've spoken to a few people and read a book recently with um, Owen Wright, Aussie surfer, who had um, uh, yeah, traumatic brain injury and concussion syndrome. What were the symptoms yeah. and why? And yeah, how long did they take to come on? Because I feel like the brain injury stuff is something that I'm learning a lot about at the moment that we're just so unaware of and so uneducated on. Yeah. Did you know much about it? And then, yeah, what were some of the symptoms? No, not at all. Like, I never knew how complicated the brain was. And we assumed that when I had the injury, you know, that's when I'd been worse. And so when my shoulder was healing, I was doing physio, trying to, like, still do a bit of exercise. And that was just making me worse and worse at this point. And I was getting very dizzy, like, a lot of sickness, sensitivity to light. And they were just said, oh, it's concussion. You'll be fine. And just, it persisted, like, just wouldn't go before, yeah, obviously the seizure. And then after that, I was very confused. I lost a lot of my memory. So I couldn't remember a lot of people in my life, so a lot of friends. So my friends would come sit with me in the hospital room, like showing me photos, like being like, this is this who this is who this is. And for me, that was probably the scariest part because I was like, yeah. I don't know who I was before this. Like, who am I now? It was a very big kind of identity crisis. And, but obviously I still knew, like I loved kayaking and I'd look at all the photos all the time and be like, wow, I want to do that again and that drove me through it and it was slowly by slowly like you know from the dizziness I couldn't walk very well like it would feel like the walls were caving in on me and even when I was lying down I thought I was like falling through the bed so oh. it wasn't the most comfortable of things but I was getting better. What's the difference between a traumatic brain injury and like a con concussion or CTE? So concussion is classed as a brain injury, but more of a mild brain injury. So you have like mild traumatic brain injuries, which concussion can yeah. come under. Um, and then a brain injury as such is when, you know, you do a scan and you can see like bruising or swelling on the brain and I had some bleeding. Um, so I had kind of a clot that had hemorrhaged. So it was uh -huh. there from the injury and then kind of, you know, over time slowly become more and more of a problem. And uh -huh. how your brain reacts is actually what does does the damage so my brain then started to swell a little bit which is why I was getting so poorly and then that's what led to the seizure because the pressure in my brain was just too high uh-huh yeah wow and then what was the recovery like for that how long until you started to see some improvements started to get some memory back and yeah began to get back into training and thought life was back to normal 
yeah so I spent a few weeks in hospital kind of and doing rehab so kind of learning to walk and um I had to relearn like proprioception because I couldn't tell how far things were away which obviously means I'd just walk into things um but it was a few weeks and I returned home kind of still a bit unsteady on my feet but was doing okay and then I kind of was allowed to go on short walks over a little bit and I'd just get longer and longer walks before I was allowed to get back in a boat before I got back in a boat I had to all these like balance testing and everything because it's quite dangerous if I'm in a boat and capsize mm. unconscious so there was a lot of like safety training which went in but I remember when I got in my boat like a couple months after the injury it was probably about three months I was just so happy and I was like right this is it back to training and then of course they said well you've got a taper and I was not happy about that and that was that was hard um but I got back in pretty quick and I was quite lucky like I was quite young so I'd managed to keep a lot of my strength and build it back up quite quickly so being in a boat just felt natural again and I was ready to go and then over time I was allowed to start doing little races and before I knew it I think it was just about a year later I was back on the start line for the world championships what are you at school still at this time last couple of years of school yeah so I would have been so 15 16 so it was like GCSE time so our exams we would go to like a college we call sixth yeah. form um yeah. so it was it was quite a big time uh, yeah, yeah that's what I'm thinking that lack of memory yeah so that lack of memory is really hard because I had to kind of you know I didn't really get how counting worked and obviously I had a maths GCSE coming up in like a month or so so that was quite a lot to work on and luckily you know it was just hours and hours of trying to like retrain my brain and doing things like mind puzzles a lot and just trying to regrow that I mean but I never fully got back all my memory so for me especially when I'm like you know my early teen years I don't remember a lot and I don't remember a lot of my childhood so it's just a big kind of blank space for me wow it's just so our brains are just the most complex incredible things aren't they like it's just wild yeah what did you think when you were kind of getting towards the last years of school your future was going to look like after school career-wise obviously chasing this dream of olympic glory but what about from a career obviously it is a career being an athlete but piling on top of being an athlete we all have okay there's a plan b or there's what else I want to become in life? What what did that look like for you? And what was that mindset for you going through the last few years of school? I think I always knew what I wanted to do, which obviously was go to the Olympics. And I wanted to go to a specific university in the UK that was very was by the National Water Sports Centre. Okay. So I wanted to go there and I wanted to study physio, especially after my injury, because the physio mm. is the ones that, you know, helped me so much and believed in me. Yeah. all the way so for me that was a really important thing um and I wanted to help people going through my situation and educate people more on brain injuries and kind of there wasn't a lot of awareness around them and how such a simple kind of fall could end in such a most catastrophic injury yeah it's crazy the amount of, there's a few brain injury um patients or people that I that I'm friends with that I've just like had no idea and it's so hard to understand because it's one of those injuries that is invisible so it's kind of like it's really hard for people to conceptualize what's actually going on for you so you get back 12 months later back to national champs um did you get to compete the year after to defend your national title yeah so I 
uh, won all my national titles again. again. So luckily wow. I didn't actually miss out because um, I managed to recover within that time. And I went back to world championships. So I was back on the start line and came with two silvers, which obviously I was a little bit annoyed about, but I had been through quite a lot and missed out a lot of training. Yeah. So I think everyone was quite surprised to even see me on that start line. Um, and I raced really well, so I was happy. And then for me, I was like, cool, like I'm done. I'm over the injury. I've made it back. Now it's time to really focus on my dream of, you know, university and getting to the Olympics. But it's not a smooth ride. There's some more that comes up in your story. Tell me about yeah, that. Um, so. Yeah. So, so how much longer after your brain injury was your spinal cord injury? How? Um, yeah. Talk me through that day, what you can remember and sort of how much you progressed through. Had you got into uni? You'd already... Um, is that on the card that you already got ready? To, are you already at uni? Yeah, talk, talk me through those couple of years. Yeah, so between the two, I actually had another injury. Um, another brain injury, unfortunately. Also a bit of a freak accident, um, which was probably a lot worse than the first one and did land me in intensive care for a long time. Wow. And this one, I had to relearn to talk and eat and kind of like everything. Um, what what so, happened in that one? So I was at school and it was a bit of a freak accident where a boy was angry at another boy uh, over a girl and I somehow walked through the door first and got hit around the back of the head but he meant to hit the boy not me so I got hit and then I fell and a stack of chairs fell on my head oh. so it was a bit of a double whammy injury um, that this time we knew straight away this is bad. Uh, so I was out unconscious for a little while and then kind of got up, went to my best friend. I'm just trying to talk to her, but just gibberish was coming out. Like I, I didn't know what I was saying. And from that moment, you know, I went to hospital and I don't remember for a good three months um, of what happened. I just remember kind of coming around for the first day uh, and just seeing my parents like so happy that I kind of knew who they were. And I wanted to tell them, like, I love you. But I was like, I can't talk. Like I knew what I wanted to say, but I couldn't get it out. Like it just wouldn't come out. I didn't know how to talk. And then I remember I wanted to give my mum a hug. And again, like I was like, I can't move. Like the only way I can describe it is I felt like I was kind of in concrete and in cement. Like I could not move. So that was a really scary moment. And um, then the hard work really began. Whereas like this is a lot worse. And being so aware so unable to like communicate it was really hard because you know I'd be like oh I've got an itch on my forehead but I couldn't tell them that so we tried to find our own ways so at first it was like blinking and my mum says like you know even though I couldn't talk I was very stroppy still I could use my facial expressions very well so but that was that was probably one of the hardest parts just not being able to communicate but it really taught me how to listen a bit more so you pick up a lot more when you can't because I feel like in conversations we're always thinking of the next thing we want to say whereas for me I couldn't do that so I had to really listen to what they were saying and I picked up on body language a lot more I think that was quite a big lesson for me in this injury and then obviously over time it actually took about uh, five months until I said my first words and could get sound out and um, like when I laughed I couldn't make any sound and so five months later um, I was actually doing a lot of music therapy so I could kind of sing and hum but not talk because it's different parts of the brain which for me was like how how does that work so I started trying to hum or like like kind of sing a little bit of what I wanted to say and then that really helped me improve 
And I remember it was actually my mum's birthday and she came to visit because I was in a hospital four hours away from home. And I remember I just said, I love you. And I got it out and I just said it. And I mean, I think it, it definitely made her birthday and was a huge moment for all of us. And from then I didn't shut up talking. So, and like it was kind of progress continued with other setbacks. Uh, I was back in ICU quite a bit, but I was progressing. And then a year later I went home. Oh my God, that story. It's even hectic than the first one. They need to wrap you in cotton wool at your school. Oh my god, that boy <laughs> must feel like such an asshole and probably never throw yeah. a punch again in his life. Far out, what an idiot! Um, but oh my god, you poor thing. You just been through the most unfortunate, unlucky, however you want to call it, event. I want to talk about the yeah this brain injury because this is something that seems so scary to not be able to talk and not be able to communicate with people. But I love the silver lining that you that you touched on there, this idea of by not talking, it made you listen a lot more. It's a quote I love sharing with people. It's like, listen, don't just wait to talk. And when you don't have the yeah. ability to talk, it's beautiful that you have that silver lining. When you say, yeah, you so that you knew the words that you wanted to say, but you just couldn't say them, that must have just been the the weirdest, but also like, terrifying feeling of just got kind of being like trapped in your body and I, and I just feel for people who um yeah have brain injuries that don't recover from stuff like that who yeah end up mute or end up um deaf or just all these different disabilities that people have you must just empathize with them so much more now yeah like I know how frustrating it was being trapped in your own body and you know I knew everything I wanted to say I knew it was going on around me and so cognitively aware, but I just couldn't. And I think obviously we had to be quite creative of ways to communicate. And eventually I got something called an eye gaze where I'd look at the words and it would speak for me, like this iPad tablet, which was really clever. I mean, technology kind yeah. of was, thank God for technology, but I mean, it's still so hard to use and takes a while when I, I, my heart goes out for people who have to use it forever it's not the easiest things and it takes a lot of kind of time and it's very tiring and it's hard to have continuous conversations with people yeah wow that's just crazy so a couple months of not being able to communicate 17 years old like prime developing young woman stage also with dreams of being an olympian junior world or junior national champ like destined for it but then having to deal with this too what was going through your head like once you started to learn did you have much sort of like why me going through your head or was a positive mindset what sort of thoughts were going through your head once you did start well I guess what was going through your head when you couldn't communicate like you said you couldn't remember too much from that period but I'm sure you can probably remember a bit of an idea of how you felt going through that for sure and when you can't remember things your brain has a funny way of trying to like make up those memories so that for yeah. me was a big struggle of like you know I'd have a lot of nightmares about what had happened or and that was quite hard but I think for me I did at first be like why me again like how can this have happened like and you start questioning like what have I done wrong in the past like where have I gone wrong to deserve this but I think then you learn like there is no answer for that and the more you dwell on it it's not going to help you long term so I kind of adaptive mindset again of you know this is training I'm starting in the beginning but this is training just for a different outcome to walk again and to get back in my boat and compete like I never gave up on that dream of getting back 
to competition and you know I was like I'm gonna have one hell of a comeback story so I kind of thought that through it and I think it was just taking each day as it comes like they weren't all great and I would be down some days and kind of I would find myself dwelling on the past but I kind of set myself this promise and I'd be like okay if I put everything into my recovery now at least in five years time I can look back and be like I've done everything I can and know that I've done everything like in a race I'd never want to come off the water and be like oh I could have tried harder I could have done that you do it as you know you give your all and so I was like I'm going to do that now I've got this chance I you know had this new appreciation for life I was like I shouldn't be here right now I shouldn't be alive so I should appreciate the fact that I am and give it that best shot that I've got yeah is that something that the doctors had said to you like you're lucky to be alive based on the injuries that you had yeah I mean my parents were told whilst I was really poorly like she's not going to make it out and obviously they were told each day again and again like this isn't good like you should think about other options and then when I did start getting better um I remember them saying to me I remember like my parents were in the corner of the hospital and talking to the doctors and doctors saying like she's not gonna have her life back you should think about you know when she's at well enough to send her to a residential home where she'll be cared for and like I don't think like rehabilitation and they were quite they had their mindset up of what my life was now going to be like and it was how I was but when me, that was when I you was, couldn't speak you couldn't talk um walk you yeah I like, wanted to scream I wanted to shout like you don't know who I am like I and you couldn't you say off. anything and you could hear what they were saying and you couldn't respond yeah. oh you poor thing I remember I just this like fire inside of me was just like building up and I was so like kind of enraged and I was like I'm going to prove you wrong I think for me, I'm very stubborn. So for me, I was like, right, I'm proving them wrong. And I wanted to set, like, I wanted to stick to that. So that, again, gave me a bit of motivation. Like, it was hard to hear. And obviously then I'd have them telling me a lot, like, you know, you might not walk again. Your life won't be how you know it. Like, you might not talk again. You might not eat again. So it's fed through a tube. And I just thought, you don't know who I am. Like, just you wait until I walk back into your doctor's office and prove you wrong. Oh my God, that is just like, I'm just trying to wrap my head around you poor thing. Like that must just be the hardest feeling ever. People talking about you and not being able to communicate with them and yell back. So when, so when you first started speaking again, were they surprised that you got that function back? And then, yeah, what was yeah. the process to walking and um, then getting somewhat normality back? Because it's your next injury that's the one that really puts you in a really difficult spot, yeah? Yes, I think like they were surprised whenever because I was at a rehabilitation facility this time. So we wouldn't, I wouldn't see my consultants often. But I remember they called my mum one day and they were talking to her and she just goes, Well, why don't you talk to Georgia? And they're like, well, We can't. And she passed the phone over and I just started talking to them and they just went silent. And I was like, Yeah, this feels good. Like, and that was again a little bit of motivation again. And from then I just progressed more and more and more. And, you know, rehab was a lot of repetition. It's all about doing the same exercise again and again and again, and it gets frustrating. Yeah. But I think it's all about neuroplasticity. So mm. the rewiring of the brain, which I actually got really interested in learning about. So then kind of my recovery also became a bit of like education. And I was like, cool, I really want to go into physio even more now. Wow. And it was, yeah, again, like just lots of physios, hours and hours a day. Like I do five hours of physios with this, like with people and then. I'd go back to my room and be like, cool, what can I work on on my own? And I'd find little ways to do it. And I was studying at the same time. So I was trying to like balance it all because obviously I had so um, 
You're trying to recover from the brain injury where you couldn't speak or walk, and then once you do start getting some function back, you're straight back into studying and training, aren't you? You're a crazy kid. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Good on you. Good on you. What um yeah? What's that progression? How long until you start getting full motor function um back so you can start looking at being a competitive athlete again and yeah, what is there any lasting injuries from this brain injury, the second one? Yeah, so the progression kind of was like I actually got quite poorly and was in intensive care. My parents were so far away and I was only 17 now. And so I decided once I was well enough, that I was going to go home. And at this point, I could talk. I knew I was. I knew people were. I could use my arms. I could sit like but I didn't have any mobility in my legs. Um, and there was some like, cognitive things like short-term memory or I'd get very agitated and I didn't have like fear I wouldn't understand risk so I do things that people wouldn't like you know I wouldn't understand that a pan on the like oven or in the like something in the oven is hot so I just grab it with my hands and obviously burn them but for me I, I just had lost that control and like capability of knowing so that was also a big thing to relearn also a very difficult thing to kind of rewire your brain to be like no this is scary um but yeah I did go home and I was in a wheelchair and I remember it must have been about five days after being home I just went to my mum I'm getting back in my boat and she goes like how and I'm like just leave it with me so I got a few of my friends around and I house back into the river so I had my boat there got the boat in the water and my friends kind of helped me into the boat and I sat in it and I was like cool we've got this far just don't fall in and my mom's like right just don't go too far like just sit there I was off I was off paddling and just having the best time in my life and that is a feeling I will never forget just that power of like wow I'm doing this after these two big injuries I'm still here and I'm in my boat I had this whole new appreciation for it and it was just like I'd never not been in my boat I just felt connected again and from that moment I you know my rehab progressed so much and I was walking about five weeks later I took my first steps and then you know I started walking with crutches I remember surprising my friends because we were at school at the time so probably walking in a crutches one day and all my friends were like oh my gosh like wow and that was also another big moment that I'll never forget and from there there was nothing stopping me and I went on to get back to training but get back to competing uh, but then unfortunately COVID happened so obviously I wasn't able to compete that year, but for me that actually was kind of a good thing because it gave me time to keep my recovery. I did my A-levels and I kind of had this time to train and not have this pressure of competing for a little bit, but just enjoy the sport. So that was your last year of school when this is happening. So you went from like your second last year of school missing time with the brain injury and then that happened at school and then the next year you get punched by a boy accidentally they get expelled surely no he wasn't no he he got quite in trouble i'm sure um, he did was a, yeah deal oh, i mean i've kind of empathized with him to be honest as well like i'm sure yeah. obviously he didn't intend for what happened to you so you spend how long until you're like back at school like did you to be able to you said last time it was hard to get you studying back this time with that much without being able to speak without being able to walk like your last thing you're thinking about is school here I'm guessing for a long time if you're three months without um yeah being able to speak like how'd you how'd the end of school go for you 
um it was tough because I they were all persuading me to you know skip a year like go like go back a year because I'd spent a year in hospital just under a year in hospital but what they didn't realize is when I couldn't speak or anything I was reading things I was listening to podcasts I was watching YouTube videos on like my revision so I was like I'm ready to take my exams and I didn't want to go back a year also I didn't want to lose my friends like you know so I fought to stay in that year and I went on to take my A-levels all online because actually COVID then obviously hit. So it was all online and they actually used a lot of our coursework to grade us on, which for me was great because I'd done all my coursework. Um, and yes, yeah, so I went on to get grades that I was really, really proud of and got to get into, a, <laughs> get into a really good university. Okay, we're talking about 2020 now, so congratulations by the way that's just like anyone listening to that any young person listening to that or any parent listening to that with kids tell your kids to come and listen to it because if you can have the last few years of schools that you had to deal with and still get grades that you're proud of and still make it work then definitely anybody can it's it's super inspiring so yeah you're finishing school starting to get your health back all right I'm going to be a rower again I'm going to the Olympics all this stuff's behind me what happens next? So I had a great year. Like I was training, I was competing, I did nationals, I was back up there and it was going really, really well. And obviously now I was 18, so I was in the under 23 category. Um, so I'd stepped up to the bigger field, like a lot more competitive, doing really well, went off to university to study physio uh, at my dream university. So, you know, I was like, wow, like cool. I'm still doing what I wanted to do. This is great. And unfortunately, um, I started university, this is now 2021, in the September. And in November, I was uh, in a whitewater kayak accident. So I was in a race uh, in Scotland, so quite far away. And it was whitewater kayaking, which I didn't really do. I didn't reflect water, but I'd done it in the past. I was told, you know, it's, it's fine, it's fine. I wasn't told until the day I got there that this race was called Death Rock. So it's in the name, but again, bit of an adrenaline junkie. And I was like, ah, it'd be fine. Like, you know, I love adrenaline, this bit of excitement. Um, unfortunately, it didn't end that way. And I ended up getting quite a nasty accident. And I ended up unconscious underwater and had to be pulled out and obviously got taken straight to hospital. And that kind of turned our worlds upside down because I had another kind of catastrophic injury. And once again, my parents were being told she's lucky, like she's lucky to be here. Uh, and they were like, you know, we can't tell you what's going to happen. You should have to take it the next day and one day at a time. So my poor parents who had to go through that because I didn't remember. And when I kind of woke up, obviously this time I could talk and I could kind of sled, but I could talk and I knew what had happened because I kind of remembered some of the accident. Yeah, what happened uh, in the accident? You're in a in a race, and what you missed a corner and yeah. death rock. So yeah, like yeah. So it's like a time trial. So you go off one at a time, and I remember being like, "Is this kind of like what Jess right. Fox does, the Aussie chick, like racing, like you got to go around?" Exactly. That's exactly it. Okay. Um, and so I had like a spray deck on, so it's the thing you kind of put around you Your and waist. the yeah, 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 exactly yeah, yeah. to keep the water out. And I struggled to put it on anyway. It wasn't properly on. But I started the race, was fine, like was doing quite well. And then the bit comes up where it's Death Rock and you have two ways to go. And unfortunately, on 
I kind of missed a slight bit where I meant to go because the waves were too strong. Like yeah. it rained a lot. The grading was different to what we'd been told. So it's harder than it should have been. And I just, I couldn't fight it. And yeah, I went into this rock and then down a little pool and landed upside down. And what saved my life is probably the spray deck came undone because I hadn't put it on properly. And um, so instead of being like trapped in the rock, I kind of fell out of the boat, obviously hit the rock and then went underwater instead of being trapped in like, it's called death rock because it's like, cause like a washing machine. Uh-huh. So I wasn't trapped in my boat, which saved my life. Um, so yeah, I was pulled out and then here comes the next injury. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Talk me through this one. This, um, yeah, I, I just feel for you and your parents and the community around you because it's um, not one, not two, but three things over three years your yeah your poor parents but yeah tell me tell me um what the outcome is after this injury yeah so immediately um I remember being in the hospital when I was awake and a bit confused but I was awake and I was like I can't feel anything like I cannot feel anything and then everything goes black uh and I don't remember a long time until again I wake up and I'm all with it because I actually had another brain injury as well. Slightly not as bad, but I had a brain injury. It's obviously a third one and the spinal injury. And I remember from then it was like just meds again. Sorry. All right. No worries. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's good. Yum, yum. So delicious. <laughs> it's like my shots of tequila. Uh, just. She's coming back with one more. Yeah, for anyone listening, I'm actually not going to edit this out. Like I said at the start, um, <laughs> maybe I will edit it out. But George is sitting in hospital and in there, what? 30 minutes, 40 minutes for a recording. This is the yeah, third time that she's had to take different medicines and different things to, you know, I guess, manage the condition, which we're going to catch up to now. But we're still back in 2021. Um, we've got two years to catch up and you're obviously in hospital right now. So there's going to be some more things that come with the complications to do with, um, yeah, this spinal cord injury and next brain injury. So, yeah, you wake up. Because your last brain injury, you could feel your body, but you couldn't move it or speak yet. But this one, you couldn't even feel your body. No, so this one, yeah, no feeling. Um, I knew something bad had happened. And obviously then they came in and were like, this is what's happened. You've um, had a fracture and it's kind of affected your spinal cord. We don't know much yet, um, but, you know, day by day. And then obviously in hospital, I remember just being like, again, how a third time now? What is going on? Like, do I just say nothing? Yeah. Yeah, 19. And I was like, well, bad luck comes in threes. This must be it now, right? Like, maybe we're done. And so this one, for me, I mentally took a long time to realize what had happened. I was kind of in this little daydream being, ah, everything will be fine. Like, it has been before until I think it was maybe. February so a few months after where I wasn't progressing and I was getting worse and worse and I was in and out of intensive care like I'd be in one week then out one week then in another 
And this is when these symptoms started to present and they're like, we don't understand. And I become really poorly all of a sudden and basically go into something called lactic acidosis. So my lactate was really high. When you said you couldn't feel your body, is this still two, three months later? You're still just like quadriplegic at this stage or no feeling? Uh, So I could kind of feel parts of my arms, which are a little bit numb, a bit tingly, but I just couldn't feel kind of like stomach down mainly. Um, So... Couldn't they, feel or couldn't move, like quadriplegic. Right. Here, like, so yeah. yeah, so yeah, so my arms I had slight movement in. Uh, it was more my hands that were quite weak, and but my shoulders and like I had my biceps, triceps, not so much, and then like abs. I didn't really have any core. More and small. I didn't my legs. Yeah. Yeah, my left arm was a lot worse than my right arm as well. So we went on to figure out that these episodes are having this thing called metabolic strokes. So my body was basically attacking my own nervous system and causing me strokes. So obviously that's why my left side was attacking was worse because my right side of the brain was more affected now. And they didn't know what was going on. So they started all these tests and they were like, we don't know. And I remember all these doctors from all around this big university hospital were coming to see me and being like, what's going on? I was like this little rare zoo animal that everyone is to come see and prod and have a look at. Um, but no one knew it was wrong. But that was kind of all put to one side to focus on the injuries. And I went on to go to rehab, where unfortunately I kept on having these episodes that would land me back really poorly. And it kept happening, but no one really seemed that concerned at first. Like, they weren't too bothered about it. So I just thought, cool, must be part of the injury. And at this point, you know, I'm starting to realise, okay, I know what's happened. It was a bit of a shock to me. Um, But once again, I was like, I can get back to training. And again, I was, you know, having to relearn kind of, I actually did have to relearn to eat at this point too, because I had a feeding tube in for a long time. Um, but I lost the kind of all sense of taste. So food wasn't appealing anyway to me, which was really weird. And so that was quite hard to relearn to swallow in particular. It was a very weird experience and horrible. But my arms were progressing, like my right arm was then strong. And my left arm, we still had no movement. And then we started getting bits back in my right leg, but still nothing in my left. And people just put it down to like the injury and, you know, affecting my brain and three brain, brain injuries on one person is a lot. Like it must just be something going on. And no one understood it, but they didn't try and understand it at the time. And I remember people being like, like my physio is like, there's more to this. Like, this is not just a spinal or brain injury there was something else going on and I always knew there was too but you know I, I had faith and trust in these doctors who were telling me you know no it's okay it's, it's the brain injury it, it will get better and I was getting better and I was doing really well and a year after I went home uh, still in a wheelchair and I was still going to rehab every day so five days a week I'd be in rehab nine till five kind of you know treating it like training and doing all the movements, trying to stand and learning all these things. Who's the superhero taking and, you all this? Mum and dad? Yeah, so my mum actually had to stop working as much because she had to take me to all these oh, kind of yeah. appointments and sessions. An and Yeah, she is. And she moved all her job to Zoom so she could do it, you know, in this little room in the hospital I was at. Um, so they really gave up a lot for me. And, you know, we actually ended up having to get private treatment instead of the NHS here because in the NHS that we just weren't getting anywhere. 
So I was in all this private rehabilitation, which my parents were funding, um, which, I mean, gave me uh, a third chance at life um, because I got the best care. And, you know, I did go home and I was in this wheelchair, like, how myself. And I felt like I was getting stronger. I was starting to train. And then mentally, I started to go very downhill. Because all through this injury, I think I'd kind of put it to one side and put all feelings into a box and hid it very deep and just tried to avoid opening that box at any point. Yeah, did you have any and psychological then, training? Like, did you have any psychologists talking to you or was it a lot physical? So it was mostly physical. And in the past, I'd had some psychological like kind of training and stuff but I never wanted it I was kind of like nope I do this on my own I'm very independent I'm very stubborn I was like I don't need you it's fine and so through this injury I did the exact same until it started to get bigger and bigger and more on top of me and I was like oh god I need help because it was getting to the point where you know I was miserable I wouldn't see friends I was pushing everyone away like I was really struggling to see purpose in life and I was like scared Mm. um I was like when's it next gonna happen what's gonna happen next and I remember all these thoughts were just going in my head all the time and I couldn't get out of it and I really really went into a dark place and I kind of felt like I was just existing I didn't feel like I was living and I remember just thinking what is my life now like what is this how can I live like this and I was miserable like and it was yeah. really hard and I started to struggle with depression and self-harm and I would never talk about it like I would never open up to my friends and I'd be very secretive and I wouldn't talk to my parents which now looking back was really hard on them because they knew that a little girl was struggling but they didn't know how to help mm. and I think out of all of it the mental battle was probably one of the worst but also one of the things that taught me the most because I think after a little bit of time I started to open up to my physio actually who I created this really strong bond with and I started to slowly feel like this weight lifting off my shoulder. And he'd just be like, this is a storm right now. You can't see your way out. You just can you see the next step in front of you? I'd be like, yeah, but just take that one step at a time and we will get, you know, further and further out of the storm. And he just always used to say, there is life out there. Life is beautiful. You just can't see it right now. And so it was coming up to Christmas time. And it, he... This last year? Took uh, so this is, yeah, last year. Yeah. This is 2022. I also was a lot longer ago, but yeah, this is only yeah. last year. So I remember I was about to take a break for Christmas because my life had just become rehab and focusing every day on what you can't do and what you can't move is quite draining and quite hard. So I was like, okay, I need to give this one last shot. I'm going to take three weeks off and I'm going to go and have fun. I'm going to live my life. Um, because obviously my life had been a lot of training and then getting injured then going back to it and then kind of I hadn't had this chance to just be young mm. and so I made this pinky promise to my physio and I was like I promise to stick with it for this three weeks and try my best to kind of live and be 20 so I did that and I, you know, I went down to Cornwall in the south where my friends actually surf and I went to watch them and join them because I used to surf with them when I was younger. And so I remember just sat, sat on the beach. They found a way to get my wheelchair onto the beach, all of these like guys carrying me and just sat on the beach watching them. And I was like, this is beautiful. And I was like, I can't like, you know, I need to fight to get this back. And New Year's Eve came and I 
wrote down everything bad that had happened that year and I burnt it and you know that was a very liberating feeling and I came back from these three weeks a new person and I think for me I had to hit that rock bottom to kind of realize everything and also to process the grief I'd had to go through of the person I was all these times and the body that I knew this athletic fit body that I was proud of that's now in a wheelchair and relying on other people was a really hard one for me to kind of get my head around Mm. but I think you know I was starting to own the fact I was in the wheelchair and be like cool I'm in a wheelchair so what like you know I can do all these cool things I can do wheelies in my wheelchair you guys can't (laughs) so I was finding ways like and it was a big moment for me and I decided actually one day I was like I need to get in back in sport it's time so I joined the gym and from that moment I think I knew I'd be okay because I had this outlet again it goes back to when I was you know 10 and my parents getting divorced this outlet of sport for me saved my life Mm. because it gave me purpose and then I started to begin to feel like I was living again and like there was something to live for and you know I I was setting all these goals and I was finding these positives and I was seeing my friends again I was making new friends and I was realizing people don't care that I'm in a wheelchair like I can't help the situation so I've got to own it I actually Mm. started CrossFit and I did my first CrossFit competition this year in February and I remember the like lifting these weights above my head I was like wow I'm cool right now like I feel so strong yeah I can't use my legs but my arms are strong and I went on to win that competition and it was amazing and you know three months after being in the gym I went on to get a PB and bench press from ever before having joined the gym with my arms being not very functional quite weak you know I couldn't really hold things so yeah three months later making this huge milestone and I think it was these things that were driving me more and more and I was feeling kind of you know more me again but I was finding this Georgia 2.0 this new person who'd come out of these injuries and was still living and finding these ways and I still had my difficulties but I was kind of finding those silver linings at the time and I started rowing so I wanted to get back in a boat and I started rowing had they got a diagnosis for you by this stage they knew that it was more than a yeah because at this stage were you progressing at the level that they thought someone with a spinal cord injury was sort of progressing or just a spinal cord injury exactly and there wasn't you know these kind of challenges with the uh, metabolic stroke so it all calmed down like I was quite well um yes I have paralysis and issues like that but I was quite well and so yeah, I went back so you to got rowing. back into rowing. And was, was the site set yes. on para rowing straight away? Did you know? Yeah. Okay, I might not be I able to get like, back to where I was, but I can qualify for Paralympic sort of rowing class classification. Exactly. So I was like, you know what? I want to go to the Olympics. I can't do that. Paralympics. And I was like, this is still my goal. It's just slightly changed. And I got back in the boat. The first time I got back in, I couldn't really use the oars very well. Um, I remember being so frustrated I'm like I know the sport like why can't I do this but then I just remember the smile on my face when we were going through the water and I was like this is home this is me and I from there I was like right I'm back to training sorry mum you're gonna have to get up at 4am again to drive me to training and I was back in that routine back in that lifestyle the discipline the structure I needed in this time and my rehab kind of stopped from being physio kind of base to more doing things I wanted to do where I saw the most progress at this point like you know in the gym and in the rowing boat 
And anyway, I went on to get onto the pathway team. And then I was invited to the Paralympic selections, which were going to be later this year. And my coach being like, you've got a good shot. This is, this is good. And I remember when I had this meeting, they were all so excited about this Georgia who just joined and was getting good scores. And I, I was getting, you know, 99% of gold medal time. And it was exciting. And I felt like, wow, like I'm the athlete again. And for me, it was very important that I had that. Um, and I'm always competitive. And I said, like, that energy I needed to get out was rowing. Mm. So, and then, yeah, didn't you break, break a world record, a para world record for it? Am I, did I read yeah, that? Yeah, so, so, no, so I broke a world record in kayaking. Um, wow. So I had, well, so I had world record of being the youngest to ever win world championships at 15. Wow. And then I had a British record in under 18s in a double. Wow. Um, so, yeah. That's so cool. So then, yeah, you're back in the boat. You're getting talked about selection for the GB team. Paris is coming up next year, with which is amazing for you guys. Obviously, quite close. It's um a good opportunity, but yeah, the the health problems continue because you're obviously lying in a hospital bed now. If you've got selections yeah. coming up soon, you better be getting out of that bed very soon. Oh, I'm trying. <laughs> yeah, t- yeah, I know. Sorry, that's a bit mean to say, but yeah, tell me what's up. No, no, tell no. Me what's- <laughs> trying to bring some light to it what's what's been the last couple of months like you've kind of got this vision ahead the goals ahead but then yeah the health challenges just continue yeah so I was busy training and went on like a training weekend and was doing well you know I was doing all these things people never taught like told me I would never do again like I'm still in a wheelchair but I didn't care like I was living a life that I loved and I, went, I was working again. I went to school to do motivational talks. I talked about how sport had helped me so much, both mentally and physically, and about my kind of journey. And then, unfortunately, it was uh, beginning of April. I, again, had just come home from this weekend away, and I was at home, and I just collapsed. And there was, there was no injury. I just collapsed. And my mum brought me into Ernie, and... I wasn't speaking very well. I was kind of out of it. And I don't remember a few days, but I was in intensive care. And I woke up and I couldn't feel anything from the neck down. And I couldn't move. And they just go, you've had a spinal stroke. And I'm like, how? How can this happen for the fourth time? And I'm only 21. And I remember this mixture of emotions. And I was like, I've never heard of a spinal stroke. Like I've heard of a stroke, but I don't get what this is. Like, what is this? And they were like, we don't know. So then the testing began and I was sent to London where I spent a long time having different surgeries and muscle taken out to kind of analyze and all these extensive tests. Like it'd be six hours of testing every day. And some were pretty painful and I'd have to be awake for some of these surgeries and bits and bobs like this. And um, I was scared and I was like, the fact that these some of the best doctors in the world in the National Neurology Hospital don't know what's wrong with me, will they ever know? So that was a very scary time. And I remember the day where they came in and they go to my mum and they're like, I think you want to sit down for this. And instantly your heart just sinks. You're like, I know this is bad. And I'm like, what are they about to tell me? I'm like, come on, I can take this. Like, I've been through all this. Like, I've taken a lot worse. It can't be that bad. And they just go, she has a mitochondrial condition. And we're both like, huh? What's what's that? And they say it's it's called melas, uh, mitochondrial, and this is a very long word, lactic acidosis stroke. And immediately I'm like, 
this just sounds fine like and I just go cool what's the treatment like what medication can I have like will, will this fix it this is out for the last few years and they just go there is nothing and I'm like well, well have you tried to find something like is, is there anything and they start to say you know this is very rare there isn't anything to cure it and usually you know it's it's a terminal illness but I, so rare with me because it's usually diagnosed when you're a child um kind of when you're born between the age of seven um so very young and usually you die within a couple of years and for me I'm like when I'm 21 how have I got this and they were basically like it's sporadic it's not genetic your mum doesn't have it it's just sporadic and all these brain injuries must somehow worsen the effect um because it's also your nervous system and your body is just in such overdrive trying to recover from these systems that your body can't deal with it and obviously mitochondria is to do with energy so it's like the powerhouse of cells your body's energy so the more and more ill I was getting the more my body was having to fight but it didn't have these energy resources anymore and what caused it was an infection a simple small infection that to anyone you know you have antibiotics you'll be fine in a week but for me it led to a spinal stroke and being diagnosed with a terminal illness and I remember just sat there like in shock and I didn't talk for two days because I just needed to you know figure this out at 21 my life was just given you know a timeline like this ticking bomb was sitting over me and I was like how long have I got and they were like we don't know you know it's it's not such a simple illness and they were like you're of rare cases it is we've never seen something like this and again these like people from this hospital were telling me um that they've never seen this illness was scary and from then obviously um I kept on getting poorly like in and out of intensive care any small infection I mean even just trying to like do physio would drive my body too much and I'd end up with sepsis I had meningitis I had thyroid toxicosis I had all these life-threatening injuries again and again but you know I made it through each one but the scariest day was probably only about six weeks ago when these nurses in this dark green uniform turn up, not the usual kind of nurse I see on the ward, and they turn up and they just go, hi, we're the palliative care team. And I'm like, why are you here? Like, what are you doing here? And they sit down and they try and explain, like, you know, what you've got can't be fixed, so we need to look at how we manage your symptoms. And all the doctors from this point just started saying, it's comfort and care, it's not about treatment. And I was like, no, there is something out there. Maybe you haven't found it yet. Or like, you know, you can do what you want, like test treatments on me. And they're like, Georgia, we can't. So at this point, I'm like, okay, I'm going to look into case studies. I'm going to try and find different things. And there is nothing. Um, but for me, although I have this diagnosis over me, I won't let it define me. Like I'm planning to go home and I'm planning to get better, you know, relearn to do all these things again and get more movement back to be able to sit in my wheelchair again and back to my sport because I want to prove these people wrong for the fourth time. Oh, you, I, I don't want to say you poor thing. That sounds like the worst like, <laughs> thing to say. And, and, and I appreciate you so much for giving me the opportunity to get to share your story, obviously, while you're in such a dark, maybe not a dark place, but in such an unknown space right now and having these different doctors and different people give you such great news like I, I don't even know where I want to go other than just I want to come and give you a big hug and 
support you on your journey and hopefully, yeah, see you get to the best health that you can with the yeah condition that you have. Has there been any hope whatsoever given for, uh, yeah, some sort of a timeline? Because it seems like you've gotten better multiple times. Is that you've had it for that long and you've been able to get better or has these recent things like made it worse? Like, oh, I just wish there's something that, I mean, I could do, but somebody could do for you to, give you a little bit more hope but it sounds like the main thing that can give you hope is your brain your mind and the power of your being that has allowed you to fight on for so long I'm sure they're probably like it's crazy that you have recovered with that um, illness that you do have underlying so many times so I I, I truly believe that you're going to be holding a medal up above your head in the para games in Paris next year and the doctors are all going to be scratching their head, but yeah, have you had any like any hope at all? Is there anything like yeah? I'm just like my. I mean, I'm I'm sure you're working with the best doctors in the world, and my my small little brain over in here in Australia can't do much. But I'm like, I'm going to send over some arepa for you. That might help the brain a little bit. I'm going to beat um Nicole, my neuroscientist friend from over in the UK, who's lovely. She might just be able to at least give some comfort and some small ideas and I don't know if you ever read or looked much into Joe Dispenza's stuff, the power of the mind and the subconscious mind. Um, yeah, I'd love to for you to look into his stuff, the amount of amazing things that have come from meditation and yeah, trying to reprogram our mind to help with stuff has yeah, been spectacular in some of the research that I've done. So yeah, what what is the looking forward? What is what is the hope right now? So, I mean, all of them tell me, like, very negative things. Whenever they come in, I'm like, what are they about to say now? And, you know, okay. I'm having to, I've got these photos on my wall um, of me before now, uh, when I was in wheelchair lifting weights with my friends, you know, me, the person I am. And they see me as this patient, not Georgia. And mm. so I just go to them, look at the picture on the wall. I've been through these injuries and told I wouldn't recover. And look where I've got. And there's a few that are like, you know, we will try and try and and they are trying like new treatments and things, but it's such a rare thing that it's not very re- like very much researched. Mm. And especially the way I have it, being sporadic and you know, late onset. Um, and the fact it does baffle them, you know, I've got through these three previous injuries, like how she done that and how she been elite athlete when you know mitochondria again is your energy like how did she have the energy to be this elite athlete and so we're kind of thinking you know maybe I didn't have any issues until the first brain injury and it must have triggered something Uh, but they can't explain it but obviously since then this is when all the issues started but before that I was fine so it is very complex and again the outlook isn't the best and not what anyone would want but I'm going to do everything in my power to once again prove them wrong and find things even you know I'm looking into like holistic treatments that obviously you don't get within hospitals here so looking into like different ways again sport for me has been a big thing like how can I introduce that again into my daily living and for me it's so important to get home because in a hospital you feel so much worse and you feel ill and you're a lot more dependent on people whereas if I'm home you know I'm back with my dogs I'm back by the river um and I can be back outside and I just think 
you know, there's so many things out there, there must be something that will help. And mm. I will find that. I will do everything in my power to find that. And so are my parents. Like, we will not stop fighting. And I think for me, the thing is, obviously I had dark days, especially when I get poorly. Like I had sepsis yeah, just a couple of weeks ago. Um, I was in intensive care and I'm still in a high dependency unit. Um, and I remember just thinking, I was, getting, I was getting worse and worse. Like, I was like, is this it? I was like, is this what's finally going to get me? And I just thought it can't be. I've got so much more to live. I'm 21. I can't go now. And I just remember thinking again what I used to think, like, I've got to give everything. And if I live for another one, two, 10, 20 years, then I'll be proud. Just as long as I know I've kept fighting. And they call it a terminal illness, but they can't give a timeline. I'm too rare for them to understand. So I'm like, well, maybe you're wrong. You mm. don't know me. You don't know my body. Maybe you don't have it right. You know, terminal illness doesn't mean I'm going to die today or tomorrow. It could mean in a long time. Something else could get me first. I mean, hell, I love mm. adrenaline. So I could do something else crazy like Death Rock Take Two. But walk, walk through a know. door and another guy puncher. <laughs> yeah, likely. Probably for me, it would just be step down and like, or a step. And injure myself but no I think oh, I... it's yeah it's a lot to get my mind around and it's a big process against a, once again this kind of grief of who I was this whole new like, diagnosis also there's a sense of relief like I know what's been wrong these last six years in between where people didn't understand and now I'm like finally someone knows what is wrong yes they can't fix it but if I know what's wrong I can find a way to fix it and I will don't, won't stop trying Good on you. You you are just a, a shining light in what is a crazy, tough, incredibly sad situation that you found yourself in. It's um, yeah, I'm just blown away by the strength that you're showing. I'm sure everybody listening is going to send every ounce of good energy, good vibes, good sort of yeah, healing energy your way. I'm gonna get my beautiful partner to make you an amazing little amulet to send over to hopefully help with your healing i'm going to send over a bunch of good human merch to hopefully yeah brighten up the spirits and make you yeah look the sharpest in hospital out of anyone but what's a is there like potential coming up soon that you'll be able to go back home and at least be in the comfort of your home or is it right now still quite touch and go with yeah the um uncertainty and unpredictability of your yeah your illness yeah, so at the moment, obviously, we're fighting to get me home and there on board, but I do keep getting poorly. Like at the moment, I'm still in yeah, the high dependency cardiac unit because my heart's decided to cause a bit of trouble now. So it's all about managing things when I'm at home. But, you know, I'm very lucky. I have very solution driven parents and my mum and my stepdad who have just been incredible. I mean, they haven't stopped fighting for me. Even when I can't fight for myself, they're there. And I think I get my strength from my mum. Like she has been my rock and my role model and all this and brought us a lot closer. And, you know, we will find a way to get me home and back where I belong in, mm. you know, comfort where I can see my friends. You know, I want to get down to the beach again. I want to do these things. I want to get back growing. I will make it to the Paralympics one way or another. So I think at the moment it's just hoping my body decides not to misbehave anymore, can stay stable and then the plan so it's underway obviously now I need care at home because I'm more like physically I was affected too so I don't have anything now chest down again and my arms are impaired 
quite a bit more than they were before. So it's then back to an electric wheelchair and things like that. So it's kind of readapting the house again and finding ways that I'm positive I can get home. I mean, we're working on it and they want me to get home as well because they know that's where I'll be happiest. I mean, trapped in this hospital room is one of the most exciting places to be. So home is where I need to be and I'll, again, find a way to get there. I'm just like so in support of anything we can do. Is there any GoFundMe or any way that people can support your journey right now? Is there anything that the listeners of the podcast can do to, yeah, help you on your journey at all? Because I know there's going to be plenty who will be so touched by your story and, um, yeah, want to do anything they can to support you and make this next chapter, uh, yeah, as easy as possible for you. So is there any way people can support Yes, my friends did actually start a um, fundraising page and a lot, some of them have done different events to try and help. Like, again, my friends are incredible and are here every day, coming in fancy dressed quite a lot and embarrassing me a lot. Um, but they did start like a fundraising page, um, which is in my Instagram, I think, in the bio. But I'll leave it yeah, in the show notes, things. yeah. Thanks. <laughs> So, they, yeah, they did start this to try and help me get home because the NHS only comes so much here and kind of certain things like the wheelchair, for me, we've had to do privately and there's quite a lot like rehab again um, we're going to have to pay for and even just trying to get to the top in my condition, this top consultant privately to just try and get on a case study or find a way. Um and I mean, I've been yeah googling all these case studies and trying to find things and know all these things. I'm going to try once I'm home. Um, so yeah, yeah, I'll definitely leave in the show notes. Make sure anyone listening, um, yeah, go support any way that we can. Yeah, make this next part of your journey a little bit easier. I'm sure people will be really keen to get involved with that. But thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you for doing it with a smile on your face and um, a lot of passion still and a lot of life left in you it's um yeah a story that unlike any I've ever heard I've, I've spoken to a lot of people with spinal injuries with different things but nobody with a rare terminal illness that doctors don't have a solution for and just the way that you're dealing with it is really special and I know everyone listening will draw strength from it for their stories when they are going through tough times they might be able to look to you for plenty of inspiration to keep going because yeah, life is very precious. Life is really special and it's amazing the memories that you've already created and I'm excited for the memories that you're going to continue to create. So thank you so much. I, I truly send every every ounce of my energy and good love and whatever I can to help you on your journey. And I know everyone listening will as well, but I do finish all of Good Humans podcasts with the same question and, I, and I'm really excited to hear what you've got for this. So what does being a good human mean to Georgia Carmichael? God, give me about this. I think for me it's all about love and perseverance I think you never know what's gonna be around the corner and you've just got to keep fighting you know you, you can get knocked down so many times but it's all about getting back up and kind of not letting all the bad things affect you in a certain thing like still seeing the goods in every day and finding that one positive a day Mm. and just trying to yeah get through i'm good on you i think people are gonna really really learn a lot from your story today they're gonna yeah just be so moved by it and yeah hopefully 
get in touch, try and send you some nice messages. I'll leave in the show notes here, Instagram and whatnot. Anyone listening, if you have been touched by the story, make sure you share it on your Instagram. Let's get as many people around Georgia and her story as possible. Um, yeah, even if it is just sending those good energy um, thoughts and prayers towards what you're going through. I think as much as you might not see it, I'm sure you do feel it. I'm sure you do feel when people are really getting behind you and really trying to support your journey. If anyone yeah, can donate, go donate. And yeah, I'm going to be sending you over a little good human care package because yeah, I, I know that the 1% club and certain things that we do can definitely bring a little smile to your face, which is, um, yeah, it's just been so nice getting to have this chat with you, watch your smiles in an environment which can quite often probably not have many smiles. So thank you so, so much for sharing your story and good luck with the rest of your journey. Thank you. And thank you. I mean, the 1% club for me, when I joined my friend actually told me all about you and I looked into it and this, this club, the chat for me is a reminder every day, even though it's tough to see that one good thing and that positive of three good things. And I think that's really important sometimes, even if they're small things and stupid things at times, it's, they add up and it's, it really reminds me, you know, there's always good and the bad. Oh, I bet. Well, thank you so much. Um, Yeah, I'm going to keep in touch, be following the journey and I'm sure a lot of people will too. So thanks for jumping on Good Humans. You're an amazing, amazing human and have a lot more to give in this world. Thank you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.